Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Hello everybody, welcome to a live recording of the Hiraith podcast, I'm proudly in partnership with the Wales Governance Centre. We'll also express our thanks to Mark Drakeford MS for sponsoring tonight's event in the Senedd The topic of this evening's recording is of course Aniron Bevan. Aniron Bevan, one of the most quoted, misquoted, revered <laughs> and misunderstood politicians in the history of Wales and Britain. But now we get to read his own words, thanks to Dr. Nye Davis, who has collated the writings of Nye Bevan from Tribune in his fantastic new book, This Is My Truth. And to speak about this book, of course, I'd like to welcome Dr. Nye Davis. The Member of Parliament for Kenal Valley, Beth Winter MP. And General Secretary of the Wales TUC, Shavana Tash. So, with all book podcasts, I'd like to start off with asking the author directly, what inspired you to write this book? What about Nye Bevan, apart from the name, of course, uh, attracted your interest as well as sort of the interest of innumerable political figures over the the years. Yeah, so I, I started off being interested in the study of ideas in, in politics and I was very interested in labour politics and socialist politics in, in Wales and, and, and Britain as well. And it, when I was, I was trying to think of a PhD topic and Iron Bevan just seemed natural because he, he was so, he just seemed to be so vital to the way particularly Welsh labour politicians articulated their political philosophies and their ideologies. So I thought it was really important to try and get to the heart of Bevan's ideas because there's lots of great material on Bevan, great biographies about Bevan, but his legacy today seems to be claimed by Everybody. all sides of the political yeah. debate. So I wanted to get to the heart of Bevan's values, his principles, um, and so I started writing a PhD on Bevan's political thought, out as a book next year. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that really struck me when I first started doing the PhD was how there wasn't really much of Bevan's writings available, um, at least not easily uh, available. There's his book in Place of Fear, um, a couple of other pamphlets as well, but his writings in Tribune seemed to be buried away in, in, in the archive. So the idea for this book came to, well, put them out in, in, in to show the, give them the light, essentially. Um, because again, I think Bevan is such a contestable figure that this was an opportunity for people to study Bevan in, in, his own, in his own words, essentially. Many people will know Bevan as this sort of remarkable orator, sort of fame for mm. his barbs and quips, but when did that become apparent about Bevan? When did everyone know this fantastic orator and writer? Well, I think it was quite, quite early on, um, really, in terms of his, his oratory. He spoke at uh, miners' conferences when he was, when he was young in, in, in Tredegar, um, was a member of the, the local council. Um, so his oratory skills were seen very early on. In terms of his writing skills, well, the earliest evidence of his writing skills was a review he wrote um, of the Communist Manifesto in mm. 1921. So he was only 23, 24 um, at that stage. But it, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting um, review because it, it really reveals a lot of the early Bevan and where his political thought kind of derived from in his reinterpretation and, and critique of Marxism. And that was really the earliest evidence of, of, of Bevan's writing. And I think that his writing gets overlooked somewhat. Um, 
because he was such a mic's gone off. There we go. Yeah. Uh, he was such a fantastic orator. Um, there are some authors, so one biography by, by somebody called John Campbell. Sometimes he can be a bit dismissive of Bevan's writing, but I think the, uh, the articles here demonstrate he was quite a good journalist. There were quite journalistic writings um, here, but there was always that underlying political philosophy that was guiding him um, in his writing. So they make for very, very interesting reading because it's not just um, Bevan... Um, just putting his thoughts out there on the page. He was analysing what was going on in the world, uh, analysing what was going on in Britain, um, and, but that was underpinned by, by his political philosophy then. So I think they're quite revealing uh, in that sense. Shav, do you have a, an early and formative memory of Nye Bevan? Uh, well, obviously I never met him in real life. Um, lots of us would have walked past, past the... Uh, the infamous statue that we have so many protests right next to, which is right next to the McDonald's. And I often think, I wonder what he would have thought about <laughs> giving his views on marketization in particular, um, and, you know, as a socialist. But I think for me, Bevin has, um, I think he's really exciting. I think he was a radical visionary. Um, the fact that he was fearless, he wasn't scared. Um, when you look back at some of the images, especially when he's there with Barbara Castle and, they, you know, about to walk into some of these big meetings, and he's just like, yep, we're here, this is my position, and I don't really care. Um, and he, you know, we talk about that clear red water, particularly when it comes to UK and Welsh Labour politics, and politics more broadly even. Um, and, you know, he was very clear. He had those clear red lines, and he stuck to his guns, um, and he had, you know, he wasn't scared about talking about working class interests. He understood that the socioeconomic factors are intertwined and that they matter. And I think, for example, you know, I think he would have supported, like, you know, rental control, for example. Um, and people often talk about, um, for, you know, uh, for example, all the debates, you know, around independence and all of this, you know, I'm one of the commissioners, so we've talk, been talking about this all, all morning. But, and I, and I wonder what he would have made of that now. Um, and I think, I think he's quite a complex character, but I think that what people have done is they've picked and chosen, and that's what happens with history, right? People try and rewrite history. And so I'm, I'm glad that we've got this book now and it's, you know, in an accessible fashion, and it's in his words. But ultimately, he was a, a socialist democrat, and I can totally under, you know, I can relate to that. Beth, what about you? What was your sort of first memory of hearing something of Well, Nye I've Bevan's? always known the name Nye Bevan, because he is um, one of the giants that we did get taught about in primary school. So he's always been in my sphere of, of knowledge which I think is testament to the amazing work that he, he did do. Um, my first and eldest son is called an iron as well. <laughs> as it happened, so we've got a, a, family, a family tradition. I mean, I, I've got to begin, sorry, by, by um, complimenting you now on, on this fantastic book. I mean, I, I read it really quickly, um, but it is really like, it's deja vu because what's going on currently um, politically and in particular within the Labour Party um, was going on during um, Nye Bevan's uh, lifetime. He was 
a visionary. He was a fantastic orator, but he was also a very accomplished writer. And I wasn't really aware until I read this. So, so like I said, I have to, have to com compliment you. Um, I'm a very proud socialist. Um, from reading his work and looking at what he did, the establishment of the NHS, he was a socialist. He was also a pluralist, um, which, which is a principle and, and an approach which I share. We need to work collaboratively. The Labour Party is or should be a broad church, and Nybevan recognised that. He talked about class struggle, about the working class movement. He talked about the need for collective ownership of the means of production. He didn't shy away from talking about Marx. We've lost a lot in terms of the freedom and the focus on philosophy and theory, which again is contained within this book as well, the need to analyze society. And crucially, it's not just and cannot be about piecemeal change. And, and there is an excellent quote in there, which I may refer to later, where he talks about the establishment of the NHS, social security reform, all positive stuff. But ultimately, you've got to have that vision for a transformational societal change. And for me, it's about achieving a socialist society. So for me, and particularly given my own recent events politically and I think the party, I've taken inspiration from this. Um, I also find it slightly depressing that there's a cyclical problem here with, with, with politics because, and for me fundamentally, the climate crisis, we haven't got time to waste in terms of cycles and change. There's an urgency of what needs to happen. And we have got the power. We've got the, um, the political will, if we choose to use it, to achieve the transformation, transformational change that Nybevan and others currently are talking about. And, and hopefully we can come on to that sort of action that's needed now. So it's been alluded to already, Nye, but... In the modern day, Bevan is a figure who is admired across the factional divide in the Labour Party, but that certainly wasn't the case during his time, was it? No, I think he, he annoyed a, a lot of people, um, demonstrated by the fact he was expelled from the party and almost got expelled again um, years later from the party. He was, um, well, Winston Churchill um, called him a squalid nuisance, and I think a lot of people in the Labour Party would have agreed um, with that. He wasn't uh, afraid to, to speak his mind um, and that got him into trouble um, and that brought a lot of criticism and a, and, and a lot of um, uh, anger from, from fellow, fellow MPs, fellow politicians, trade union leaders as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he, he wasn't afraid to, to, to speak his mind so he did wind people up <laughs> um, um, quite a lot but I think it comes back to um, um, what Beth was, was, was talking about in terms of he had this vision of society um, and he wanted to see it uh, unfold. Um, and, I mean, there, there are um, criticisms to be made of some of that vision from, from various perspectives, but he was very much determined to stick to, to that path. And he, he could compromise, he could uh, compromise with others, but he didn't want that to 
to compromise on, on certain principles. Mm -hmm. Shav, what do you think about Bevan gives him this wide appeal in the Labour Party? People, you know, he's quoted widely even by figures on the right of the Labour Party, people who certainly at the time probably wouldn't have agreed with him. What about Bevan's vision, his style, his values means that people continue to quote him to this day? So, you, know, you were talking about, um, now you were talking about, now, um, <laughs> uh, talking in relation to the TUC, for example. So he was actually very critical of the TUC at the time because um, the TUC were taking a bit of a nuanced position around nationalisation um, of industry uh, post-war. And he was just like, why would you not support this? Are you mad? Like, wh why is this even a conversation? Why are we having this debate? And now you look at the likes of Mick Lynch, for example, and even the TUC nationally at a UK level, it, they're very clear. We want nationalisation of railways. We want nationalisation of all the following things. So um, I guess sometimes it takes um, time for visions um, to be understood and for um, people to make the connection. And I think he was um, very quick off the mark. Um, and I think that, you know, he... Uh, the ambitions that we have today for Wales and the future that we want, I, you know, I would be, you know, you know, people talk about who would you like to bring back to life to have dinner with. I think he would be one of those people for me. He'd be definitely my top five. Um, and, you know, with um, also in terms of policy making, he was really good on understanding how you make policy. He was very crystal clear on that. Um, how you shape policy so that you have worker interests at the heart, um, front and centre of what it is that you're trying to deliver. So like I say, he wasn't, he wasn't scared about those things. And sometimes I think that politics today, people can become a little bit uh, focused on what is popular. Um, and I don't want to, you know, uh, push the boat too much. Um, I want to keep uh, appealing to the broad base. Um, and sometimes you can lose yourself in a, in a way. And, and he didn't do that. He, he, he stuck to the position. And, and even if it meant that it was generations following, that eventually his message landed and, you know, people understood it. Well, you know, so be it. But nonetheless, he, he was, I think, uh, really clear. And the other thing I, I would like to say is that, you know, we've had, you know, politics has become quite divisive particularly, you know, given what's happened with Brexit and now the continuous argument around immigration, for example. Um, and I think that he was really clear in terms of the real issues here. And it's about having a welfare system that works, making sure that we have, you know, it's about employment rights. How do you exercise those rights and how do you actually enforce them and the regulation aspect of all of this as well, so that the ordinary person can feel the benefits of having a political class. And talking about a political class, he also understood um, what class interests were and how do you use your position of power when, when you are in the driving seat to make that change happen and to make it appealable to uh, a wider group and that's why I think that he has so many different interested voices from all sides being able to pick up on his vision today. We talk about today. Beth, how do you think Nye Bevan would have dealt with the Labour Party today? Hey. 
I think it would have been very difficult for him um, in the current climate. Um, I believe very strongly that the party is a broad church. Historically, it has been. Um, but I do, and I've, you know, I have publicly said, I think there are concerns about the um, factionalism <laughs> and the the word purge was used by my colleague and friend John McDonald earlier this week in terms of people who have certain views within the party. Um, the party was established as a socialist party and I Bevan spoke very powerfully about the need to transform society and I was very pleased this year to hear Mark Drakeford quote Marx himself in his um, Labour Party conference speech saying that it should be from each according to the ability to each according to the need. I mean, he actually said that. So there is, in Wales, I think we are in a different place and there is hope. Um, and I think the cooperation agreement, talking about plurality, is something that we must support. And there are lots of progressive policies in Wales that I think the Labour Party nationally can learn from. Free school meals universally in primary schools. The universal basic income um, uh, pilot. The climate ministry in Wales is, you know, is the first of its kind. The work that, that, that Julian Lee are doing is, is really well ahead of, of his game. So there are lots of things that I think within Wales that the UK Labour Party can um, can learn from. Um, but I do have concerns. And I think um, the, the inability for, for, for debate, discussion in an open um, and a... It, it is so important. The only way that we move forward as a party is by having those discussions and debates difference is something that should be welcomed and it should be celebrated. It shouldn't be seen as a threat. Um, and I think that we're in such a critical juncture in terms of our society and democracy. We need those transformational policies now. Um, so yes, I, I, I think you would find it very difficult. <laughs> Shav, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think he'd find it hard, but you know, he, he was he was who he was and he was very proud of it. I don't you know, I I, I wonder sometimes, you know, what would it look like if he had ended up as the leader? What would our kind of what would the policies look like under his leadership? And if he was the person leading it, would he have been able to deliver on all of his vision? Or would he have, you know, you know, now you've talked about his ability to compromise, but then given what, you know, Beth has just shared and how difficult it is, I mean, would it have been any different for him? And is it down to, you know, the individual? Is it down to his personal character? Is it down to his beliefs, where he came from? Um, all of those things. But I, I, you know, I sometimes wonder, what would he have made of social partnership, for example? 
um, because he was quite clear, you know, unions are there for, uh, for workers and you've got to, you know, unions can't be seen as being so close to government. And, and I wonder, like, what would he have made of our kind of, like, latest, uh, you know, social partnership procurement legislation? So, yeah, look, I, like I say, I mean, I'd, I'd love to, would have loved to have had that conversation <laughs> with him. Can, can, I, can I just quote from him? Because, sure. I mean, I, from a couple of the articles that I, and it, it, this is, resonates with me so much at the moment, um, given the current situation. So, he says, the polarisation of British politics is not, therefore, between Labour and Tory. Um, the real struggle is for the soul of the Labour Party, and that consists in our socialist purpose. In the last analysis, the financial and economic vested interests of Britain would be perforce content with the succession of Labour governments if these could be persuaded to drop socialist policies. So we don't need to tinker in around the edges as a party. We need fundamental change. And, and he does go on, and again, this, this is something that really resonated um, with me in terms of um, what he was um, saying. The common factor um, which Labour people share and which sharply distinguishes us from the Tories is socialism. And that word itself is um, frowned upon in certain quarters. And it shouldn't be, you know, we should be proud of it. Um, the more we play it down, the less we differ from our opponents and the less reason there is for people to vote for us to get the others out. Um, what we need, and I think this, this, this really did hit a note with me, are fewer prescriptions and more prescriptions. More let's do this and fewer don't do that. We can easily afford differences of opinion if these are not carried to the point of mortal combat. Um, and I think that speaks as much of the situation today as it did in Nye Bevan's time. It is extremely dangerous. It is um, undemocratic. We must encourage and welcome differences of opinion. Um, and the Labour Party, as Nye Bevan fought for, needs and has a duty to push for that alternative socialist vision. And, and, and we're, we're at a very difficult time at the moment. But, but you know, please, if you haven't read it, it really is inspirational. Very excellent. Sorry. So I started the, the episode off by talking about Bevan quotes, and Beth has quoted uh, from Nye there, and I'm about to do the same, because I, say that, I always say to you, don't I, that one of my absolute favorite Bevan quotes is, the language of priorities is the religion of socialism, mm. but that's been misconstrued, I think, so much over the past few decades. It's been sort of stripped of its radicalism. It's designed to make to mean that politicians should be more practical mm. than it is to be radical. Mm. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that it's one of these quotes where I think the second part of the quote is always just dropped off. Yeah. <laughs> you, you often see, and, and Welsh Labour leaders have been guilty of this in, in conference speeches, mm -hmm. and Labour politicians guilty of this of saying it's all about the language. Bevan said it was all about the language of priorities, and then they just forget about the religion of socialism. <laughs> that part. Um, and, I, and, and I think it does exactly that. What, what that quote has, has done is it allows people to say, uh, a good example was... Um, Alinid Morgan, uh, the health minister, used that quote in, in plenary, talking about um, giving a, a pay rise to nurses. Um, and 
the, the debate over pay rise to nurses, and Lyndon Morgan said it's about the language of priorities. And I, and I was thinking, well, surely one of Bevan's priorities would have been to pay nurses <laughs> a, a, higher, a higher wage. Um, and that, yeah, it, it gets used to be a quote about different priorities, whereas I think what comes out very clearly for me in particularly the second chapter on labour in the unions is, I mean, there's... Uh, another good, good. Sorry, I'm picking on certain politicians here. But they're just very good examples to, to to make the point. During the lead, Labour leadership election between Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith, uh, Owen Smith presented his politics as I, I'm radical, but I'm I'm pragmatic and, and I'm practical. Obviously, making the say that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't, um, and he always invoked an Iron Bevan to do that to say Bevan was a radical politician, but he was pragmatic. But there's an article in here where yeah. Bevan criticises those who mm. say the party needs to be more pragmatic mm. and needs to yeah. be uh, more practical. And he says that if and a lot of this debate is about the commitment to public ownership. Yeah. Um, and Bevan says if you drop that from the Labour Party, there's no difference between mm. Labour mm. and Conservatives. Mm. It's a battle between Tweedledum and Tweedledwee. That's, yeah. that's, that's, he, he mentions Tweedledum and Tweedledee, Tweedledee a couple of times in the, uh, mm. in the book, but that's how he, he, how he expressed it. Um, so there's a lot of quotes like that. So I think that's a good example of how maybe the radical element of, of, of Bevan's um, politics gets stripped back somewhat. But ultimately, at, at the end of the day, he was a Labour politician. And as I said, he, he could compromise. Um, and just as he upset the Labour leadership, he could upset the left uh, as well, denouncing unilateral disarmament in, in, in 1957, um, uh, 1956 rather, um, really angered the left. And he was seen as selling out to the, to, to the Labour right and, and, and the Labour leadership. Um, so... <clears throat> While he was arguing that the party needed to be more socialist and it needed to emphasise the socialist values, he was still committed, rightly or wrongly, to the Labour Party. And I think that's one of the, where one of the criticisms from the left of Bevan certainly comes in, that he was too, had too much faith in, in the Labour Party. And by the end of his, his career, there's a, there's a passage in Michael Foote's, um, uh, in the second volume of Michael Foote's biography of Bevan, um, which is written by the journalist Geoffrey Goodman, who followed Bevan around on the... Um, and the 1959 conference, where Bevan just seems exhausted. Um, he, he died a year later, so it may have been the start of the illness, but he just seemed physically and, and mentally exhausted. And he said, we've lost our chance. The Labour Party has lost its chance. There are hardly any socialists in this party. Mm. Um, but then, the next day, at conference, he gives this rally, rallying cry for unity within the Labour Party. You know, we all need to pull together. Um, uh, uh, but that's because he was a trade unionist, right? And as a trade unionist, what you do, you always try and pull everyone back together yeah, and remind everybody why we're here. What is our purpose as a collective? What is our purpose? And I think that that, for me, really, like, is significantly important. And the other thing, as well, is that... At that time, that was around the time where, you know, unions still had power. But as unions, you know, union membership has dropped, of course, we've seen spikes and changes over the last couple of years. But as collective bargaining, you know, kind of disappeared, as an industry disappeared and, and you know, all of a sudden you, the size of unions has changed. You've got more small and medium-sized unions. Not all of them are Labour Party affiliated. And so they don't have that direct access over the National Policy Forum, for example, and shaping 
policy that is going to have worker interest at the heart of it all time. So even now, when Labour-affiliated unions are trying to influence the Labour Party in terms of the Labour Party manifesto and, and the rest of it and the priorities, it's really challenging. It's, it's not easy. So, yeah. I think you've been a bit harsh on him, potentially. <laughs> because now I, I, I am a left-wing left, um, <laughs> left winger. I mean, he was a man of his time. And I think, you know, it's easy to look back and be critical. I'm not saying you were being critical, <laughs> but for the left to be critical of him. But having read, um, you know, the articles contained within this, as, as well as what I know about him already, he, he, he was a man of his time and he was very radical at that point. And yes, he was part of the Labour Party, but he did see, he had that vision, and I think we've lost the vision um, to a large extent um, within um, the, the party. And he did see that you can't bring about political change without the need for economical, economic change as well. He could see that Social link <laughs> in terms of what was needed, and he talked extensively, as you said, about the need for public ownership better wages and he talks about a national movement that we need to develop so I think you know given the time that he was um, writing and, and, and was um, a, a member of parliament I, I think I think he was you know a, a giant of his time really. I think this is one, one of the things I find so fascinating about Bevan is all these tensions that, that, that come out that those particularly the, from sort of Ralph Miliband's uh, new yeah. left, criticised Bevan for, obviously said the Labour Party couldn't be a vehicle for socialist change, but Bevan believed it could be, mm. because Bevan really had a lot of faith in the Labour Party to create radical change. He, he experienced that in Tredegar. You know, he was able to yeah. influence things. Um, and he, he gets to Parliament, and all of a sudden he's dealing with people who aren't from the same background as him, mm. and I think he struggled with that, although... Did like fine dining and, uh, and having a having a glass of uh, glass of Bollinger with his enemies uh, every now and then. Um, but that, that's why I think he's so such a fascinating character. Is that he has this faith. He really has this drive and this vision of the Labour Party is the, the best vehicle in order to to change things. But he comes up against so many roadblocks. He comes up with people that that broad church nature of the Labour Party means. He has to make compromises, and some of them he doesn't like, and he lashes out. Um, but some of them he is he is willing to make, and I think that's f for me. When I when I started researching Bevan, that was one of the things that that came out. There were times where I'd read his stuff and think, "Oh, this is brilliant! This is fantastic!" And then at other times, I'd be really frustrated with mm -hmm. um, over something. Um, and I think that's what the the, the legacy element I, I think distorts that somewhat. Um, mm. But and I, hopefully, what this book does is bring some of that out to say, to, to, to demonstrate that it's not so straightforward as some people might, uh, might expect. But um, yeah, I think that's why he's such a fascinating mm. character and why he is revered on the left of the party, on the right of the party, but also criticised on the left of the party, right of the party. You know, he's, um, but he would have accepted figures. that, wouldn't he? Because he, um, he saw that there were tensions within the party but he was willing to see that that was a good thing. Yeah. And I think we've lost that yeah. to a large extent because he spoke about, in his early years, particularly about, you know, having the Communist Party become affiliated um, and, you know, yeah. all sorts of various groups as well as the trade union movement, part of the Labour Party. Yeah. So those tensions weren't seen as a negative, yeah. whereas currently 
tensions and, and differences of opinion are not embraced yeah. in the way and, that they should. And I think embraced is, is the right way. He embraced these, exactly. these discussions. Yeah. There's, I think in, in, that, in that article you quoted from, he talks about how um, there's always going to be disagreements. Yeah. There's always going to be disagreements over the struggle, but you need to actually talk through those disagreements. And as you said, in the, the current Labour Party, <laughs> it doesn't seem to, that, that debate doesn't seem to be um, happening as much as it, as it did back in the, the 1950s. It's interesting that both Nye and Beth, you've talked about sort of the, uh, the, whether the room for compromise, the disagreements within the party, but Nye, I'm interested in your thoughts. There's many people involved in the left in the UK and Wales would know, and some of the biggest fights you have are within the left. So <laughs> Beth had lots of battles within the Labour Party. Do you mind going a little bit about, just to give background to everybody, some of those battles you had with uh, Gateskill et al.? Mm. Yeah, well, that, that battle with Gateskill is, is often kind of simplified to be a battle over public ownership. That essentially, 45 to 51 Labour governments brings a lot of things into public ownership, and then the argument is, is consolidation versus advance, um, essentially. Bevan arguing for advance, mm -hmm. uh, Gateskill and the revisionists arguing for, for consolidation. And it was about that. Um, it, it, was, it was a personal battle as well. I don't, they didn't get on. Um, and again, it comes back, come back to this point that Bevan was from a very different background to, to Hugh Gateskill, um, an Oxbridge-educated economist mm. and somebody who was a, was a coal miner from the age of, uh, age of 13. Um, so there was a personal battle, there was an ideological battle. And, and often it, it, it does get reduced to that consolidation versus uh, advance. But then that reduces Bevan's ideas to simply being, we need more public ownership. Um, and that's what, again, that's one of the criticisms that comes um, well, from, from different strands of Bevan is that he never really thought through what public ownership would look like and it would just lead to more state bureaucracy and he never really developed that. The articles in the book demonstrate that he did start thinking about the, the, the relationship between the economy and the state. And it goes back to this review of the Communist Manifesto in 1921 where he says the materialist conception of history runs through this manifesto like a golden thread. So for him, you change the economic base, mm. and thus you create, uh, 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 you, you develop a new society, essentially one where power is in the hands of, of, of the workers, mm. and that creates new values, new principles within society. So there was a vision there, and again, there, there were times, and I, I, I say in, in, in my in my next book, um, <laughs> about times where he kind of retreats back from that and goes to more prosaic concerns but um, there is an ideological battle there within within the party um, there were some things where there's, there's agreement um, between the different uh, different sides um, but I think that kind of sums up the Bevan gate school um, kind of uh, kind of argument mm -hmm. I think. another interesting discussion that I found is from these articles now is the, um, the discussion about how close the Labour Party should be to the trade Union movement. Would you mind again summing up a little bit about what Bevan's thoughts were on that? Yeah, it, it was quite a complicated relationship, really. It was, it was, when I first started researching Bevan, I was surprised by his hostility in, in many instances because he was from the trade union movement um, himself. But I think that there were times, so during World War II when Labour was in coalition, Bevan um, was criticised the trade unions for becoming too close to government there. That essentially, well, he supported the, um, uh, supported the electoral truce and supported the coalition, 
but was worried that Labour politics weren't being ex expressed, that essentially it's conservative policy and it's just rubber stamped by the, by the Labour Party and by the trade unions. That's what he was worried about. Uh, so his criticism of the union during, during World War II in particular is that they are becoming too close to, too close to government. In the 1950s, he's, he's very critical of what he sees as the right-wing leadership of, of trade unions, argues that they're not listening to their members, um, and that it's the rank and file, um, uh, that the, the, the voice of the rank and file isn't being heard. And when he's almost expelled in mid-1950s, there's an article here about him standing for treasurer and, and why he was standing for treasurer. And he talks about the union bloc. He said, well, they were, obviously, they were always going to vote against me. And there were trade union officials saying Bevan should be expelled from the party um, before the hearing had even, had even begun. Um, so he was, he, he had this tension there. And there, there there's, some, there's one article in particular where Bevan says, in a socialist society, you wouldn't need trade unions because um, trade unions are there to protect workers within the framework of a capitalist society with collective bargaining. Um, and Bevan said, your trade unions serve their purpose, they're really important. But then, once you have socialism, you don't need trade unions anymore. Um, and he's right. Yeah, yeah. Once you get to that point, trade unions are no longer needed. Workers' paradise, we don't need trade yeah. unions. I mean, that's the ideal. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Um, so, so he had this really strange... I, I think he, he valued the importance of the industrial wing. He said the labour movement has a political wing and has an industrial, industrial wing. Sometimes he believed the industrial wing was getting too involved in the political problems. Sometimes he thought the industrial wing was doing a better job than the political wing of, of the Labour Party. Sometimes when he, was, when he was in government, he could be quite critical of workers going on strike because you don't strike against the Labour government. Um, so there is this kind of tense relationship uh, there, um, which, again, draws in the criticism from, from, from different sides. But um, it's, again, uh, some of it comes down to personality. Didn't get, a, didn't get along with a lot of people, but I think it does come back to ideology uh, as well. That Bevan, as we said, in a, in a workers' par paradise, in a socialist society, you wouldn't need trade unions because the states would be representative of the people. Um, I see some people will say he was naive in that, but uh, you know, that, was, that was his vision of, of society. So the place of the trade unions becomes a bit complicated then. And, and you mentioned and it, social it partnership as well. Yeah. What he think about that? I, um, I, I wonder. I mean, it is complicated though, because even for us as the Wales TUC, and when we look at the British UK TUC, our Scottish colleagues always say, refer to them as the British TUC, Shaft, not as the UK TUC. Um, and it is, we have to sometimes remind them that we have got a Labour government in Wales, and it's never as straightforward as some people might assume. And you do still have to take strike action, and, um, and you do still have to continue fighting for what is right and what is just for workers, and that worker interest always comes first and foremost. And even when we were, you know, uh, we've got Nisreen Mansour, one of our policy officers at the back there, if anyone wants to know anything about the social partnership legislation, she's your woman. Um, but, you know, when we were going through all the detail in terms of what that should look like, all the unions kept saying was, what we don't want you to think is that this is going to be meaning that all of a sudden we're signing up to like a sweetheart, like no strike agreement. That's not what this is about. And that was partly because they were so worried about being seen to be so closely aligned to the to government. Um, and, and even now we have to remind our colleagues at a UK level that, yes, of course, you know, 
it would be brilliant to have a UK Labour government and have, of course, one here. But I think that they can learn quite a bit in terms of it's that doesn't mean that it's going to be straightforward. It doesn't mean that you're going to get everything that you're demanding straight away. And you're going to have to find ways and means of compromising or agreeing to disagree, but always sticking on the side of the workers. But how would you describe the relationship between the the parliamentary labour movement and the sort of industrial trade union labour movement in the present day? I think it's challenging. I do think it's challenging. I mean, the fact the Labour Party nationally prohibited <coughs> MPs from going on, on, on the picket line, I mean, that, that was, you know... I just couldn't get my head around it, quite frankly. So, 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 so there are challenges. I mean, I, just picking up and listening to, to, to Nayan Shavdov, if, if you allow me. I mean, I, I start from the from from the the importance and the, the the fundamental need for us to have this vision. Yes, there may be differences and challenges between the um, trade unions and the politicians, or in you know industrial versus parliamentary um, politics. If we are socialists, and if we believe, as, as Marx wrote, you know, from each according to the ability to believe, then we've got far more in common that, than we haven't. And I think there are risks in us becoming um, either afraid of challenging or too challenging at, at, at times. And I, I want to give an example. If we look at the cost of living crisis. Last summer, I plugged and plugged and plugged. I fully supported in ways the trade unions challenging the Welsh government for, for, for additional pay, and that was the right thing to do. I also think the trade union movement, alongside the Labour Party in Wales, should have established a broad movement to push against UK government demanding fair needs funding for Wales because they hold the purse strings. So it's not an either or for me. I think if you've got the vision and the principles which are founded on socialism, we can work our way through those differences and, and, and divisions because they transcend, really, you know, the minutiae of, of, of the differences that, that, that exist. I mean, it's not I, think, I, I understand that, and I think that broadly the, the position was, of course, Wales needs more funding. But when you're in the middle of a dispute, it is about political choices, right? And it's about negotiating an outcome uh, for, for workers, and the unions have then got to ask their membership. And if the membership is saying, yes, it, yeah, we accept that it's a funding issue, however, we also know that this, the sum of money is this. And so there's a political choice here. Do you find something where actually the offer can be higher than what is currently on the table? If that means that we've got to take strike action in order to get that, then that's what we have to do. And then also, in terms of that additional funding, we then need to have discussions well in advance about what we're going to do with that money when it comes through. So, for example, now... There's been, you know, the long-running uh, discussion about pay restoration. 
And so the Welsh Government has committed that, you know, when it comes to public sector pay, over a decade of not having an inflation-proof pay rise, that yes, we support pay restoration. Yes, we support a pay body review. This should be maybe possibly an even different structure. And if we get a Labour Government at a UK level, then we here in Wales need to be quite clear. What does pay restoration, what are our priorities for the public sector in particular here in Wales? And how do we shape and influence what the UK Labour government, if they you know, end up as a, as a government, as a Labour government, where it is that they will prioritise? So I think it's um, it, in, you know, in principle and as, as much as unions could do at the time, it was and it always will be that Wales demands better funding. We need fair funding. But at that point, it, it is about kind of, it, it's really tricky to manage a relationship. Um, and sometimes, like I say, we have to, you've got to take it to the extreme end, but never fall out to the point that you can't come back. And that's where I, I'm hoping now that particularly with the legislation that we have established, that at least the principles are there and they are built on socialism and they are built on you know, fairness and equality. And of course, we've got the future generations legislation as well and having fair work now firmly embedded there. We've got a new commissioner and you know, he comes from the union movement. So it's going to be interesting to see how we move some of this debate forward. No, and, and I, I know previously, but I suppose drawn on, on, on my bear then, because I suppose as we were discussing, you touched on earlier in terms of looking at how people interpret priorities and, and being pragmatic. We've got to be radical and we've got to have our vision and we can do both. And, and I think Nybevan had that belief that we can transform society and we've got to have that, those big ideas as well as the difficult, you know, challenges that, 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 that are inevitable within that. Because if we are going to transform society and achieve a socialist society, we've got to be bold, we've got to be radical, we've got to be united and we've got to work collectively and that collective movement um, is needed now more than ever, as I would have said, or did say. <laughs> <laughs> we sit here in the seat of Welsh parliamentary power, and although Nye Bevan operated in a time before the advent of devolution, he was, at least at the very beginning, an opponent of the creation of even the role of the Secretary of State of Wales now. Uh, would you mind talking about his sort of attitudes towards mm -hmm. decentralisation to Wales? Yeah, it's again. It's, it's it's another one where there's a bit of nuance, a bit, a bit yeah. of tension there. Where I think Bevan, the Bevanite wing of the party, is seen to be the the, the Devo skeptics. Um, so as devolution was being debated in the in, in the party, people like Leo Absey and Neil Kinnock would refer to themselves as being the Bevanite wing of the party. Mm. Therefore, they were they, they were anti-devolution. Um, but again, I think the the, the picture is a bit more complicated than that because. There's an article here in the book on Wales. It's a very short article. It was an editorial Bevan wrote for Tribune where Bevan's talking about a Welsh day. They have a Welsh day debate in Parliament and one of his, one of his most quoted lines on, on this issue comes up is that there's no, there's no difference between a Welsh sheep, a Scottish sheep and a Westmoreland sheep. We're all sheep. So this devolution's pointless because if, you, if you're debating an issue to do with sheep farming in Wales, the same problems exist in Scotland, the same problems exist in England. So that, that line has been kind of used to say, well, Bevan was against devolution. But, but the article here, I think the way Bevan is rep represented, the article he wrote here doesn't really reflect that mm -hmm. because he's very, um, 
he talks about Wales as a culture of its own, a language of its own, which is so different from English culture, so, so different from Scottish culture. It's, and that needs to be recognised. He said we need to, to recognise differences across the UK. And in that Welsh Day debate, he talks about there should be a special constitutional device for Wales that allows that difference to be, to, to be recognised. Um, I think for Bevan, I think he was more ambivalent towards it than being actively hostile. There's the story of the, the debate within the Labour, uh, uh, Labour shadow cabinet between Bevan and James Griffiths. James Griffiths is arguing for the creation of a Secretary of State for Wales and Bevan is supposed to have said to him, oh, do you really want it? And he says, yes, I, I really want it. He says, fine, go on then, have it. But you better make a good job of it. Um, so Bevan, I, I think that kind of reflects Bevan's attitude a bit more, is that he was quite ambivalent to it. Because, again, it comes from... Um, I mean, Bevan could be a, a bit of a British nationalist at, at times. Britain has the moral, moral leadership of the world because of the creation of the NHS. And, um, he, he spoke very much in kind of pro-British terms um, quite often. Um, so there was that element. But I think as well it comes back to his faith in Parliament, whether it was um, an unfounded faith or not. He, he believed that Parliament could be the vehicle for, for change. It was a, a power in the class struggle, Bevan mm. said, where the working class, the sectional interest, the, the, the general interest was being waged against the, the, the sectional interest. And for Bevan, I think... Discussions about devolution might have taken away from that because he had this faith in the British state. And obviously those, um, the, the, those of it, myself included, who support Welsh devolution disagree with that. Um, I think after founding the NHS and seeing what the British states, or what you could achieve through parliamentary politics, Bevan thought, well, yes, this is, this is the vehicle that, 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 we, that we can use. Um, so yeah, I think maybe ambivalence might be the, the, the best word rather than being pro or anti. I, I, we saw had a tweet earlier, didn't we? Say, somebody <laughs> saying he was against the Welsh language, against Welsh yeah. culture. He came out with things like calling, complaining about Welsh speaking, Welsh writing zealots, and he, he did come out with stuff like this in his more attempt, um, te uh, less tempered mo moments. But I think yeah, I think ambivalence more than mm. anything kind of describes that. Mm. Um, I think, again, going back to my comment earlier, he was a man of his time. There wasn't devolution um, yeah. in the 40s and 50s. We weren't in that space at that yeah. time. We are now. And, I mean, I would broaden it to, to a discussion about the Constitution. And on the Constitution, I mean, he said the House of Lords should be abolished. Yeah. He commented that he supported proportional representation is a quote which I wasn't aware of in, in, in here. So, you know, aggressive thoughts, uh, views that I completely share. Um, and I read that article with interest about Wales. And as, as you just said, now, he talked about embracing the difference and about our Welsh culture. I would go back, to, sorry to what I said earlier as well, though, that it's, it's not just about the politics. You've got to look at the economy. Otherwise, you can fall into the sort of nationalist, um, anti-English approach. So he could see, you know, as Mark said, that you've got to fundamentally change the economy. We do now have devolution. 
we need more and we need the devolution of not only power but but wealth and 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 you know all sorts of of, of, of um, various aspects of um, of power and it is about bringing decision making as close to the people as possible and I if he was living now I don't Again, I'm interpreting, but I don't think it'd necessarily be a pro to that because I think that's how we can bring change. And if you look at the examples of community wealth building in Preston and the fantastic work that uh, Jamie Driscoll has been doing up in up in up in the northeast, um, and and some of the stuff not myself but other people in the valleys are doing around things like community wealth building, which is about you know how much we develop and retain wealth and ensure that local people own that wealth, which is about devolution, then that clearly does resonate with the sorts of approaches and vision that the that, 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 that Naive had. But he was a man of his time, wasn't he? You know. Shout out to any thoughts on that? I, I think I agree with all the comments that have been made in terms of he was a man of his times. I think, like I said, I would I'd be interested to to see what he would have thought of devolution today and you know, he would have been the first up as far as, uh, you know, evidence can we get him in. <laughs> I think it would have been fascinating stuff. But, you know, um, and of course, he was a dapper dresser, right? So you can't take that away from him. Um, but I think that we can learn a lot um, from him. And um, now as we go through kind of like changes to our curriculum and learning more and trying to understand what, what is Welsh identity, I would love to see, you know, him as an individual your book um, featured in our curriculum for, the, you yeah. know, for for people to kind of really get to grips with who the man really was and what his thinking was and to have those debates and critical analysis, you know, of what his vision really was other than just the one statue that we have next to the McDonald's. <laughs> I mean, well, so, but what he did talk about as well, which I picked up in the book, was about young people. And, and that is a current concern as well about the, um, you know, lack of political engagement of, of, of young people. And he also criticised the parliamentary structures yeah. and the setup um, and the detachment of politics from reality. And having been up in London for the last three years, it seems like 30 sometimes, <laughs> it, is, it is a bubble up there. It really is so divorced from, from real life. And given the... Um, low, abysmal in some regards, voter turnout, you know, in, in elections. We've got a huge mountain to climb in terms of getting people politically engaged. And he does touch on that in some of his articles, and I'm probably, he's probably talked a lot more about it as well. But I found that fascinating. Yeah, and, think... and comments about young people, because they are our future, aren't they? And we need them to engage. And with the climate crisis, you know, they're shouting out at us, you know, we've got to do something now. And, and, and he touches on, on, you know, the need for that in the book. Yeah, and, and, and he saw Tribune as a, um, an instrument of socialist education. That yeah. is, is, yeah. is, 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 is faith in Tribune there. Yeah. And, and going back to what we talked about earlier with the, the criticisms of the, the, the trade unions and, the, and the, the labor movement is, one of the criticisms is Bevan didn't think they were educating people in socialism, that the decisions were made at the top, yeah. the constituency Labour parties and uh, mm. the trade union rank and file were, um, were not consulted on these, on the, on these issues properly, um, and therefore they weren't having that socialist agitation within the party. Um, and, and for Bevan, coming from the background that he came from, mm. that, was, that was central to his politics in, in Trudeau. Going to the Central Labour College in London, yeah. learning about Marxism, learning about the history of 
radicalism in, in, in Britain, um, go into Marxist educational classes in, in, in South Wales. Mm. You know, this was this was vital to Bevan. And he mm. argued he didn't see the Labour Party as fulfilling that function um, o over time. And I think, um, yeah, I, th I think that education was was, was important. Mm. Yeah, and we're seeing that reverse now within the union movement in terms of socialism, understanding what workers' interests are, how do you organise, how do you bargain, you know, where does the power lie and the rest of it. And I think that you've, you can see that in terms of the different leadership, you know, amongst the unions over the last decade or so, um, and the issues and debates and discussions that people have been having, you know, and, and linking them back into, you know, the community is the workers, the workers of the community. And, and I think that Nye really genuinely understood that. And in the part, we've lost such a lot of sense. We had community organisers, didn't yeah. we? Went to Jeremy, and a lot of that was, was sadly gone. <laughs> so, <laughs> credit to the unions. <laughs> <laughs> it would be remiss of me on this week of all weeks where we celebrate the 75th anniversary of the NHS to not ask you what you all think Nye Bevan would think of the modern-day NHS. And, of course, our modern society, as we live in it now, but obviously... I could appreciate if you give very short answers on this question because I know that I'm getting shouted at to wrap up. <laughs> um, short answer, I don't think you'd like it. Um, the NHS across, the different NHSs across the UK. I think one of the things f f for me is um, coming, coming back to the legacy of Bevan. Mm. There's a lot of talk about Bevan's values and principles and, and, but quite often this can get reduced to free at the point of delivery. That, that's the value of the NHS that Bevan that wasn't the only thing about the NHS. Um, Bevan saw the NHS as one part of changing society. Um, so uh, when there's discussions about the NHS today and the state of the NHS, going back to Bevan's work, we can see that, or his broader political philosophy, we see it's about more than just illness treatment. Roger Morgan talked about how Bevan didn't create a national health service, he created a national illness treatment service, but it didn't sound as nice people being called mitts. Um, uh, so for Bevan, it was about wider society, going back to the economy, um, giving people uh, the opportunity to lead fulfilling, flourishing lives. So looking at the NHS today and going, trying to go back to Bevan's values and Bevan's principles, I think we need to go beyond the free at the point of delivery yeah. aspect, which is important, but look more more widely at the, the different socioeconomic factors yeah. that feed into to good health, healthy lifestyles, uh, etc. And I think be that for Bevan was was really important. Beth? I completely um, completely agree. Yesterday, up in Parliament, we had Sir Michael Marmot come and give a presentation, and he spoke about um, the. Um, social determinants of health and inequality. You cannot divorce the health system from the wider socioeconomic um, factors and, 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 and issues within society. And I shared the concerns about, you know, the comments about the need to um, prioritise. And this comes back, and I know I keep repeating myself, is about having that vision. You know, we have got the means in order to have a world-leading NHS, but also to tackle the poverty and inequality, and you can't do one without the other. And we have to look at the health system within the broader context. We have to look at it 
in terms of the preventative measures. It needs to be looked at in conjunction with the social care system, which is seriously in crisis at the moment. So it's about prevention as well as treatment. And unless we look at it in the round, um, we are um, facing a, a, a difficult future in terms of, of the National Health Service. And I really do have, you know, concerns about, even within my own party, the, you know, the reference to the need for, for a private um, system or, or a, a private element to the system. You know, it must be retained within the public sector. And that's something that I will continue to fight for within the party as well as outside of it. But it's, it, you know, it's, it's part of the transformational change that, that needs to happen. And, and credit to Bevan for establishing it. And credit to you for not back. It's not generally. I think you would have said, um, what about social care and why isn't that free at the point of need? Mm. <laughs> and uh, given the, the ageing population that we have here, it's absolutely fundamental that any kind of privatisation, outsourcing, get rid of it all, we bring it back in, it's got to stand right next to the NHS, it's interlinked wholeheartedly. Um, and I think that he would have said, well, who's going to work? in NHS or social care, I think he would be really deeply concerned about the fact that we've got a massive recruitment retention crisis. The fact that, you know, workers are genuinely leaving. They're leaving not because of a choice, but because they're exhausted and they can see that there's other options for them. And so I think he would be really worried about worker, worker interests. And I think he would be saying, you know, we need to have pay justice today, not tomorrow. Again, thank you very much for coming. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to like it right on all the socials, even the new ones that keep appearing out of nowhere. <laughs> uh, and go to our website, www.wellspartings.com. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.